Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. And welcome back to another episode of Building the Future. My name is Yanina Stragoon, and I'm an Associate Fellow for the Project on Prosperity and Development at CSIS, guest hosting for Dan Rundy. Today, I'm joined by Tim Strong and Mark Castellino from Opportunity International. Opportunity International has been developing strategies to increase financial inclusion across the globe for 50 years building financial services, trainings, and support services that help individuals experiencing extreme poverty build their own pathways to success. Tim Strong is head of agriculture finance at Opportunity International. He has dedicated his career to working in Southern and Eastern Africa since 2005. He holds a bachelor's degree in biochemistry and plant physiology from the University of California, Davis, along with a master's degree in environmental policy and an MBA in operations management from Middlebury College, and currently lives in Lilongwe, Malawi. Mark Castellino is Senior Vice President of Government Services at Opportunity International. Mark has been deployed to crises including the Kosovo War, the Indian Ocean earthquake and tsunami, Sudanese Civil War, Cyclone in Myanmar, and the Haiti earthquake. He holds a master's degree in agricultural economics from the University of London School of Oriental and African Studies. I'm podcasting Tim and Mark today to talk about Opportunity International's investment strategy, philosophy, and tactics in poverty alleviation among smallholder farmers. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Absolutely. Glad to be here. Thanks, Janina. Great. So um, I will hop right into our first question. So Opportunity International aims to bridge the rural finance gap and increase the flow of capital into agriculture as a means of ending extreme poverty in the global south. Now, you both were just at the Cracking Nut Conference that brings together finance experts from around the globe focusing on this very thing. And there are many different investment strategies to address these market failures. Can you elaborate on your own investment strategy and how it supports smallholder farmers in increasing production, income, and employment? Yeah, thanks, Janina. I might take that first one um, and let Mark follow in for any gaps that I might have. But So our organization is now in its 53rd year of operations. We've reached 19.4 million clients, 95% of whom are women, through 104 partners in 30 different countries. Uh, We've seen facilitation of a lending portfolio worth over $2.3 billion, and over $300 million of that money is direct financing unlocked for smallholder farmers. Specifically within agriculture finance, we bring together partners like many of the people who are here at the Cracking the Net conference and really look at mutually beneficial relationships centered around access to financial services. Um, However, at the end of the day, what we're trying to be really careful of is access to finance and financial services are not an end goal in themselves. Really, the question is, how is finance being used, Yanina, very much to your question, to create jobs, to increase employment, to increase income at the end of the day? One of the number one things that we see from the farmers that we work with is, how are we helping them make more money? So in short, our program is really developed, deployed, and and strategized around how do we make sure that a value chain is working 
that the market failures, which you mentioned, Janina, are really being strengthened so that at the end of the day, farmers grow more and they get more, really increase in terms of their earning capacity. The reason that our portfolios exist are the basis, Janina, of the market failure. Pre-commercial farmers still only produce at 20 to 30 percent of their potential yields. So when we really look at what's important, you know, the value proposition of our strategy is increasing the incomes. Man, this is really a chronic problem. Right? Underproduction becomes globally significant. So we compare this to the fact that global food production will need to double by 2050. As we see rising demand, um, we see really an exponential increase in food and fiber costs around the world. This makes industrial profitability decrease as workers' wages will need to match the associated increases in cost of living. We feel very privileged to be at this conference focusing on agricultural finance and how to really make this work because currently the market demand and assessment is that only 3% of agricultural finance is currently met by the market. So that's a $2.3 trillion gap on the continent uh, and a really important business case for why we really need to see a blending of commercial capital together with philanthropic capital to really close that market failure and that gap. So I might leave my response there. Thanks, Jenny. Of course. Mark, anything you'd like to add? No, I think that uh, Tim really captured it well. You know, uh, for us, uh, smallholder agriculture has really been in our DNA when we think about you know, where the largest areas of poverty exist globally. They are in rural communities. And uh, that's why, you know, for an organization like ours, it is really intensely focused on how we can make move the needle on extreme poverty. It is within rural communities and within communities that are dependent on agriculture that we're going to make the most change. That's great. Yeah. And I think, Tim, you know, you touched on this a little bit during your previous answer, but I'm curious if either of you could talk a little bit more about how, you know, a major focus area of your work is dedication to supporting women entrepreneurs. So how do you do your products take into consideration the need of women smallholder farmers and what are their specific needs as it pertains to agriculture? Yeah, so it's a really difficult question for this sector, right? You take agriculture and you take finance and you put them together and you have two of some of the most male-dominated sectors out there. So we're really continuing to work on this process. And historically, our portfolios were sitting roughly around 18% to 28% women, which ultimately was insufficient for the challenge that we're trying to, to solve here. You have to remember that at the end of the day, when we look at agriculture labor, for example, across sub-Saharan Africa, 56% of all labor on African farms is done by women. And yet they're underrepresented when it comes to access to not just finance, but access to extension services, training. And there's a number of limitations and challenges that are really magnified. Of course, you know, I think what's important for our strategy when it comes to making agricultural finance more inclusive is first and foremost a single point. Gender is not a monolith. Women are incredibly heterogeneous in terms of their needs, in terms of their limitations and their capacities. And trying to offer just a women's focused product in agriculture finance will be a recipe for failure. So as we've moved and seen now our farmer base increase to 61% female, we found really a few critical strategies. Rural household dynamics are complex 
particularly in underrepresented communities. So we really took a focus on what we call farming as a family business. How do we do spousal training together with both husbands and wives to talk about the mutually beneficial really results of seeing a business increase as both partners work together? Um, we've also done a lot of work specifically on alternative collateral. This is really important because women, particularly in rural communities, have access to fewer productive assets, are not able to collateralize loans as effectively as their male counterparts. So really, how do we start working with large development finance institutions with smaller guarantee facilities to start to see a replacement of uh, traditional cash collateral requirements, land collateral requirements? Um, but what I think is really exciting from our work in terms of bridging a lot of the risk-return gap in financing rural women, is that one of the most effective tools in our toolkit is women-to-women. -women. So we see that as we've pushed to have over 40% of our extension services represented by women, that we see more women coming to receive services for financial inclusion. And that's really an exciting piece for us. Yeah, I would just add to what Tim described there. Uh, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the UN, FAO, uh, recently brought out uh, the second of uh, their reports in on the status of women in agri-food systems. And they highlighted a few areas where women are disproportionately affected by climate change. One is uh, uh, in their adaptive capacities, so women's ability to absorb some of those shocks. Often, you know, um, when you think about the control of resources, men may often control more of the uh, resources that could be beneficial to that adaptive capacity, having cash available, those types of liquid assets that can be immediately beneficial in the times of shock. Uh, women may just have less access to those. They also talked about increased labor burden. When we think about things like reduced or, or depleted water sources, it's often women who have to travel to collect water. And if those sources are depleted, it's the women who have to travel further. So their labor burdens are actually increased. And then also exposure to extreme weather events that women are often, we often see higher death tolls among women in events that impact an entire community. And so when we're thinking about those ways that women are being specifically in, uh, impacted by climate change, it really gives urgency the, to the kinds of things that we're doing. And so, for example, on you know uh, decreasing labor burden, when we can strengthen uh, farmers' capabilities and, and production systems on farms that reduce labor requirements, then that's having a direct impact on, on women and their ability to be able to, you know, do other things with their time rather than some of the, uh, some of the manual activities that they may have had to do previously. So, so these are some of the ways that we're, we're thinking about um, how women are particularly vulnerable to climate change and how we can help to address that. Yeah, and I'd love to dig in a little bit more on your work on climate change in general. So as it pertains to climate change, we know that those experiencing extreme poverty are at most risk from climate disasters. And Opportunity is responding to this with a focus on developing strategies that support agricultural resilience and adaption for your clients. So what is Opportunity doing in this space that differentiates your approach from other organizations? 
Yeah, you know, I might kick us off on that one too. It's been a really exciting time for our, our program implementation, for the growth of our portfolios. And it's really driven by what I would say is two key indicators that we use to define our own success internally. The first is that we're seeing farmers increase their harvest yields by 57%. The second is that we're seeing them increase incomes by 67%. We have net promoter scores done. We're seeing roughly a 71% net promoter score in terms of training and access to financial services. And this is great news. We're really excited about this. But it's also abundantly clear that with all the advances we are making through our regular programming and increasing income, increasing yield, and rural job creation, that we are constantly at the brink of collapse as the climate crisis can erase the progress within a single weekend, literally. For many of the listeners, they might have heard last year's updates on Cyclone Anna in southern Africa, which as of 2022 was the most severe tropical storm ever recorded in the southern hemisphere. Heartbreakingly, on March 12th of this year, Cyclone Freddy made landfall twice in southern Africa. Mudslides collapsed whole mountain faces, resulting in 83,000 people being displaced, more than 57 camps set up. And within our program alone, within just Malawi, where I live, over 1,000 clients lost their houses, farms, and livestock. So we're seeing that the farmers we serve are at the forefront of a battle where Climate crises, extreme weather events, droughts, floods, cyclones, new pests and diseases are destroying crops and homes. Local economies are destabilizing, heightening risks for farmers and the entire agricultural market. But most importantly, what we do know, as Mark said, is that this is disproportionately affecting the poor. So for the bottom of the economic period, we can map it line to line. Both multidimensional poverty overlaps with climate exposure. 2018 alone, climate disasters directly affected 30 million people. By 2050, an estimate is that 200 million people will likely be displaced by adverse climate events. And for those of us in the agricultural sector, climate factors already explain up to 50% of poor yield anomalies on farms. For us, to your question, Yanina, sorry for the long prologue on that, Opportunity's role is not to stop storms. Um, Our role as an organization is not to affect global change. But what we can do, I might even say what we must do, is work with farmers, the, the, the same farmers that we already serve, to increase their ability to adapt to an ever increasing landscape. The climate scientists make this as an essential distinction. We say adaptation versus mitigation. So for opportunity, We've adapted and improved how we serve people living at the bottom of the economic period for the past 52 years. And we all know that when disaster strikes, people living in poverty are hit the hardest. And climate change is no exception, making interventions an issue of climate justice at the end of the day. So we've really been working together with our partners, working together with Mission Aligns, institutions and organizations, and even have had numerous discussions here at this conference for the last two days on what are the key solutions to look at adaptation. For Opportunity International ourselves, we've chosen to focus on regenerative agriculture, focusing on soil health solutions. How do we really look at resilience to climate change as a combination of improved land use practices, water filtration on farms, really making sure that this is bundled together with an increase in community cohesion and the right products so that ultimately 
you know, we're looking at changing our entire financing model for our financial institution partners. We used to really focus and had our portfolio strategy on a single value chain financing model. So looking at a single cash crop, focusing on lending for conventional agro inputs on a per acre gross margin basis. For us, really looking at a more diversified approach for the farmers we support is important in terms of their long-term resilience. Looking at not just monoculture, but multi-cropping systems, integrating agroforestry onto farms, looking at minimum tillage, maintaining living roots and green, green cover crops and manure onto those farms. Uh, for us, this is really a, a question that we're looking at and really a, a hard challenge. How do we ensure that smallholder farmers today are equipped with the training, the support, and the financial solutions we call really durable solutions to really ensure that their work is secure, to ensure that rural families continue to prosper despite what the world is continuing to throw at them, to really see that at the end of the day, today's farmers' children and their grandchildren will still have farms to inherit. Mark, did you want to add anything onto that? No, I think you covered that really well. Thanks, Tim. Yeah, I actually had a quick follow-up question that I was curious about how I am assuming that a lot of this impact of climate events is is also forcing migration. And I'm curious if you could just share really quickly how you're thinking about the movement of people and how that relates to their ability to have agricultural productivity as the climate change continues to kind of worsen. Yeah, Mark, I might just start off anecdotally and then pass to you with some of the broader lens perspectives on that as we look at even some of the conversations today that were in discussions with the Department of Defense on climate financing as a preventative uh, measure. So I have had the extreme privilege of living in rural Malawi for 16 and a half years. Myself, I run a farm. The cyclone that I mentioned last year, Cyclone Anna, literally flooded the same community where I have a, a farm with my wife. And for the first time ever in 16 and a half years, I've seen a number of communities come and talk to their government, to the government of Malawi, and said, we would like to leave. <laughs> we would like to be moved as a whole community out of this area that is consistently and ever more increasingly being exposed to climate risk. For an agricultural community like those in Malawi, this is something I, that we never see. People have a lot of pride in terms of where their home is. I think the expression from uh, Europe is you play for your parish, right? This is your hometown. This is where you build your businesses. And what we're starting to see now with the level of intensity of climactic events is that people are asking to, to leave a place that they've called home for generations. Um, and that's a very uh, important point, uh, Nick Yanina. Mark, from your side, the perspectives in terms of more of the global lens instead of the localized lens? Yeah, well, I think that there are a couple of things that, you know, we see around this issue. One is that you know, for, for a long time in development, one of the things that we were wrestling with when we were thinking about migration was probably a little less than forced, but the pull of the urban pull of migration from rural areas and, you know, some of those economic drivers uh, that caused people to relocate. And uh, we recognized in those instances the real challenges that that placed on 
you know uh, cities uh, the increased um, uh, the increased movement of people often perhaps without the skills to be able to take advantage of job opportunities or that there were just no job opportunities available for them and you know kind of the new types of poverty that that created but as we're seeing you know as tim kind of described some of the challenges around migration that is really uh, driven by climate change that poses a whole new set of challenges for one you know there could be legitimate and reasonable explanations for why people might want to go to an urban center because of higher salaries you know better standards of living those types of things but people who are being displaced potentially to locations that are maybe even worse than the ones that they were in because of the you know changing weather conditions or the the, the inability to farm uh, the land that they live on or own, those create all kinds of new economic challenges. And also, one of the things that we've wrestled with, particularly in finance, but kind of more broadly in agricultural development, has been issues around land tenure, and which has you know been a significant uh, challenge in places that have traditional or more customary land uh, tenure uh, regimens where we're not able to utilize, uh, people may, may not have ownership of the land, and we're not able to utilize that land for uh, collateral against loans. Those types of things, or, or even to just invest in their own land, knowing that they would be able to keep it. We've made, I think, some good progress in some places around land tenure, but all of that has the potential to be significantly disruptive if people can't even farm on the land that they do own. Uh, so an asset that could have been so productive and profitable for them suddenly uh, becomes worthless when it can't be productive anymore. So there are really significant challenges around the economics of migration that is driven by climate change. And whatever we can do to make people's own land and their own homes a productive asset that they can continue to make a living for them and their family from, that's going to you know, make a really significant difference in the, in the lives of uh, the households that we're working with. So there are some important issues there that really drive beyond necessarily just the economic factors, but also kind of impact why we're trying to do this work in the first place. So yeah, those are some thoughts from my side. No, that makes a lot of sense and highlights, I think, the importance of the adaption strategies that you're working on uh, to be able to make sure that people can stay where they are and make use of, of that land. I think my last question is, or for now on, on kind of this this topic, um, Tim, I know you had mentioned that you are, you live and farm in Malawi yourself. And so what do you believe to be the tools that will best help farmers bridge that gap between humanitarian needs and adaptive resilient practices? Yeah, so it's, it's, you know, a privilege to sit in a beautiful conference hall here in D.C. and discuss large-scale problems with many people in suits and ties and, and you know, discuss, you know, what can be done better. I think the reality at the end of the day, though, is that's not how farmers learn. They don't learn from us having a conference in D.C. Um, they learn from each other. Um, so really what's almost most exciting for me in terms of some of the tools bridging some of the gaps when it comes to the duration of investments that are required for a transition from land use practices is the fact that 
farmers are teaching each other these practices. Um, so for us, we, we've been pretty bullish about standing up what we call a farmer support agent network. So recruiting local lead farmers within their own communities. Uh, we use a number of metrics and human-centered design processes to really identify local leaders. And, and we call it at the end of the day, high touch plus high tech. So really enabling uh, lead farmers to have the right tools, access to information, access to standardized training together with ministries of agriculture to really say these are some of the best practices at the end of the day. So it's elevating the voice of the farmer themselves within their own communities that we found to be one of the most effective tools to actually supporting farmers uh, at the end of the day. And this is not just an African farmer approach. Uh, this is the same here in the States. Um, I used to work together with the USDA in the past with extension services, and it's the same thing. Um, we can't take a bat, even you know, a banker out of a branch hall and send them to a farmer to try to convince a farmer to change what they're doing. Farmers learn from seeing best practice, from really the tangible results of what's changed. Um, so for us, that's really exciting, but it's really how do we get more in depth? We had the privilege two weeks ago of hosting our technology advisory council that's supporting a lot of the innovations in our work. So as we've been deploying agents in the field and local lead farmers, equipping them with smartphones, uh, we've also seen that there have been other changes that are happening as we go. So I mentioned Cyclone Freddy this year, changes in rainfall patterns. And you know, for Example, the 90,000 farmers we're supporting in Malawi in terms of transitioning to nitrogen-fixing crops like soy. It was really exciting to see the growth of the market, but this year after the cyclone, the rainfall really became erratic. And what ended up happening was an outbreak of soybean rust across the almost all of these farms, decreasing their yields by 50% in just two weeks' time. So we took one of our lead farmer support agents, her name's Anna, um, we put her and some of her other, you know, what we call super farmer support agents, put them in a room with a bunch of techies from Microsoft and from other technology organizations and just started asking them, how do we help you do your job better? How do we make you more influential in your own community? And we tested a whole number of different innovations. The one that stands out the most to me, though, was we sat some of our uh, lead farmers in front of a computer and had them have a conversation with ChatGPT. The reason I did all this primer about soybean rust and everything else was Anna specifically sat down and, you know, was just like, what am I typing into a computer? <laughs> and, and she asked a question that's been bothering her. She's like, what recommendations do I give the farmers that I support, 150 farmers in my community? What pesticide should I tell them to buy to deal with this soybean rust? All of a sudden, ChatGPT starts writing back and says, well, actually, you don't need a pesticide. You need a fungicide because this is a fungal problem. And, you know, she's like, oh, okay, that's interesting. So then she types next, okay, what, what fungicide do I need? And it gives a whole list from the global handbook on, you know, how to deal with this. And she's like, I can't buy any of those things. <laughs> she said, okay, in my district here in Malawi, how many of these fungicides are available? And where do I buy it? And where are the shops? And what's the current price point? And starts getting this whole list of information. And her response as she turned to our team, she said, this will make the farmers that I work with think I'm a genius. And it's moments like that that start to unpack and unravel really what are the value propositions in terms of influencing change. So we were quite excited about that. 
Um, we're looking at integrating that into an automated WhatsApp chatbot and ring fencing it, putting it on rails within, in this case, within Malawi's Ministry of Agriculture recommended best practices. So it's not just pulling from a global data set, but very specific and, and focused on solutions there. That's really interesting. And I, I was going to kind of transition into kind of the different partners that you work with. And I think you already covered a really important piece of that in describing your concept of farmer support agents. Mark, I don't know if there's anything you wanted to add on that program specifically. Um, otherwise, we'll kind of transition into discussing your how you work with businesses and governments as well. So just opening the floor up to you if you have anything to add. Yeah, I think we can talk a little bit more about the farmer support agent model. So really, and and I'll cover a little bit about the ag extension piece, and uh, Tim will talk a little bit about the bankability side. So when we think about uh, agricultural development projects, pretty much any agricultural production focused project is going to include some level of agriculture extension. It's all really about technology transfer, how we can equip a farmer with an understanding of a new improved practice or a new input for them to use in their in their agricultural activity. And so this is what we spend a lot of time doing. A bunch of organizations do this as well. And as you might imagine, there are a bunch of approaches to it, but they are the the different approaches are largely driven by two factors. One is cost and the other is scalability. And generally speaking, you need to make some trade-offs between those two factors. And the thing that we've been wrestling with is how we can make the fewest trade-offs or how we can get the best of both the driving down the cost as well as increasing the scalability of our approach. And that's how we kind of came up with the extension approach in the farmer support agent model. And what we do is we, we do that by harnessing technology. The most expensive cost in an agricultural extension project is the cost of the knowledge. So if you want a really high impact extension service, then you hire very well-trained agricultural extension officers, people who have got um, advanced degrees in uh, agronomics and plant science who are going to be able to impart the best knowledge that they can to the smallholder farmer. But that is expensive. And so what we've done to drive down that cost is to use technology uh, to replace the need for having that highly skilled um, person who is transferring that knowledge. So what we can do is take a very motivated, uh, dedicated person within their community who is a farmer who understands general agronomic practices but doesn't necessarily have the qualifications of an extension officer, and we give them a tablet that contains all of the information that they need. And we um, have a bunch of different types of information in there, but one of the areas that we've really been innovating and pushing is providing video-based training because what we've found is that knowledge retention through a video-based platform is far superior to traditional training models. In fact, we did some research and found that if we compared between a traditional ag extension um, training where you know the person goes to the field and shows the farmer how to plant in rows or different ag agronomic practice, and we compared that to a video, which, by the way, we produce using 
actors, uh, and I say actors probably in air quotes, because uh, these are people within those communities who are actually doing these practices. It's their neighbours and and other farmers within their communities. And they watch that video and see that practice. We saw an adoption uh, or we saw a retention in knowledge from 52% with a traditional model up to 84% with a video-based training. So that's one of the things that we have particularly focused on trying to do. And so we equip our farmer support agents with really high-quality information. And we also harness peer-to-peer approaches. So utilizing somebody from within that community when we can't, we wouldn't necessarily be able to find a trained agronomist within that community, having a peer within that community, we've found, and it's been proven, to increased adoption of practices. There is this influence of seeing somebody else in your community and having somebody else in your community be the one who's providing you with that training. Uh, So those are some really interesting things that we're doing to improve and increase approaches to agricultural extension. Tim, I'll hand over to you to talk a little bit about bankability. Yeah, you know, just really briefly, I think to follow on Mark's point, um, I, I still remember as a little kid at school being taught a little game called telephone or broken telephone based on where you come. You all sit in a circle, you whisper in your neighbor's ear, you tell them a story and they pass it on and pass it on. And then the big reveal at the end is how much that story has changed. So really what Mark was describing is how do we standardize content? How do we make it so that message doesn't change as it's passed on and on and on, but really say this is best practice. This is what we want to see disseminated. What that does on the back end for a financial institution that is very wary of the risk involved, particularly in financing smallholder farmers, is really the confidence that these farmers are starting to mitigate what we call production risk. How do they really make sure that they're producing at a level that will yield returns, but at the end of the day, their income is enough to support repaying a loan to the bank? The last thing we want to do is set up a structure where we're supporting predatory lending and making sure that really ultimately these practices do continue to be profitable at the end of the day. Uh, What's really exciting, though, is there's a risk category that we call operational risk, which in effect says credit delayed is as good as credit denied. So if it takes a financial institution two months, three months, four months to actually get a loan product to a farmer and say the rains have actually come two months prior to that, it doesn't matter if the farmer has the best support and good agricultural practices, the best market linkages, the best connections and networks. They will not use that loan for their productive purposes on their farms. They will use it for something else or they'll actually just return that money to the bank. So really using that digital layer with the farmer support agents to really build up capacity for a financial institution to lend at high quality levels, but much more quickly. And what we're starting to see is combining that data to support the credit approval processes at a financial institution. We've seen credit approval times reduced from, in some circumstances, 60 days down to four days, really making sure that we're facilitating that flow of capital in a timely and effective and efficient model. That's great. And clearly quite a bit of progress. It sounds like these programs are are really effectively working. So the last thing I, I want to discuss with both of you is looking at the need for working with governments and businesses to increase climate resilience tactics as part of overall climate strategies. I'm curious why you think there's been a slower adaption, adoption of resilience practices with some as opposed to others. How do we get these institutions 
on board. And then finally, can you discuss some other notable partnerships, perhaps out of or inclusive of the governments and businesses that you're working with to support your agricultural finance initiatives? Yeah, absolutely. I'll talk a little bit from the perspective of government funding, which is the area that I focus on. Resilience has been of growing importance in development, I'd say probably for the past 10 years, if not a little longer. But I think, so I think it's not so much that as an industry, we're slow to catch on. But I think the problem is the pace of climate-related shocks is outpacing the speed of the industry to pivot. And so I think that, you know, in the past, resilience was discussed in the context of the occasional disaster. I think when I, you know, started out working in development, it was Southeast Asia tsunami uh, is an example of one of those like once in a lifetime types of shocks. Or I think about conflicts, you know, South Sudan or Darfur or Kosovo. Those were somewhat discrete activities that um, uh, that were time-bound to a certain extent and um, did not happen so often. But if you think about uh, climate crises, they are a whole new thing. When eight of the last 10 years are the hottest on record, we're seeing the pace in which uh, climate shocks have the potential to happen. And we think also about the covariate risk. You know, we're not talking now just about covariate risk at a, at a local level. We're often talking about it at a national or even, you know, multinational level where the impacts of a climate shock can cover entire regions of the globe. So I think that that's perhaps the biggest challenge that we're facing around the pace of keeping up with uh, climate crises. I think that there are positive signs. I think that we are, uh, we're seeing more global action happening. And I think that we are moving in the right direction. But that issue of pace is going to be the, the key factor that we're all fighting against. Yeah, Mark, I don't know if you overheard this conversation in the hallway earlier today. I overheard someone saying that the climate crisis is perhaps one of the biggest economic opportunities the world has ever seen, um, which I do not want that attributed to myself. I think we're actually looking at more of an economic problem as opposed to an economic opportunity at the end of the day. But what we are looking at is really the importance of a partnership-based approach in terms of making any of this work. Um, we're partnering to deliver financial incentives through local financial institutions and the markets that we work in. We're looking to how do we leverage better the partnerships that are being formed with government agencies here in the United States, but also across Europe. We're working with the government of Jersey. We're working with how do we build things out with the German government, with others, with UN agencies to really build out strong systems where we can blend different types of investments to enable us to do this really in, in a market-based approach. So offering you know, both our farmer support agents like Anna that I mentioned, as well as many of the smallholder farmers we're working with, both more accessible and more affordable finance on the basis of really their agricultural practices. For this, this will you know, ultimately require us to do two things. So we think we, we're on to something that can make a real difference, but we will need to scale our capital. So financial partners are critical for building resilient farming practices. And it has been remarkable over the last three years for the financial institutions and the markets that we work with. We've seen the number of partnerships double over the last three years and the value of financing triple 
And last month, we got to close uh, with a cumulative $300 million in finance unlocked for these farmers. We also have to scale our reach. Reaching farmers is another challenge. We found that the best way, as I said earlier, to reach a farmer is with another farmer. So how to really make sure that uh, we're, as Mark said, we're doing this in a cost-effective way, but it is not just funding partners that are important to make this happen, but strategic partnerships on the ground. So what I love the most about the last two days at this conference, so this conference is full of technical implementing partners. So we're really working on both Mark and myself and the whole team we have here. How do we learn from number of presentations, the booths, and say, this is a partner that we see as mission aligned. How do we leverage their boots on the ground together with ours to really build meaningful partnerships? How do we make sure that these practices are adopted at a large scale? It's ultimately, you know, we define our success as what we call rural prosperity. But how do we do that by including a definition of building resilience against climate shocks through targeted training, through really seeing moving the needle on regenerative agricultural practices? And I, I believe that we can do it. In, in Malawi, our farmers have an expression that say, mutu mozi susenza denga, which is one head can't put the roof on a house. So we're really looking at partnership as the key strategy to enable us to make a huge difference in terms of both our own work, uh, as well as our partnerships and, and the clients that we serve. That's great. Well, I really appreciate both of you taking the time to join us today. This has been really interesting to kind of hear more about what you're doing and the really critical, especially pieces of adaptation that your work focusing on women and and connecting farmers with other farmers. I think all of that makes a lot of sense. So we really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you, Nina. It was great to be included today. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 